Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. So this was one of those interviews where I was pinching myself for several reasons because Dr. Bound Alberti may not know that I'm a big fan of her work, but I was like a kid in a candy store. I also want to amplify her work because she doesn't get as big of a platform as maybe other thinkers, but I think she is talking about really cool, interesting stuff about ethics and history in medicine. She's talking about emotion. She's talking about gender. We talked about race discrimination and she can talk about all these different angles. So she's got a few books, Matters of the Heart, The History of Medicine and Emotion, This Mortal Coil, The Human Body in History and Culture. And then she has a book called A Biography of Loneliness, The History of an Emotion. So we talk quite a bit about loneliness. And I hope that you will help me amplify Dr. Faybound Alberti. She, you know, came up in Wales and York, and she's in the Department of History at the University of York. And I think she's thinking about the world in a way that I find really compelling. So listen in, listen all the way through the end as she wishes all of our listeners a beautiful wish. And um, please, let's amplify her voice. Let's amplify her voice. Um, I think you're going to be really inspired. Dr. Bound Alberti, I am really thrilled to get to talk with you today. After reading some of, some of the things that you've written and some of your studies and watching your TED Talk, um, not only your research on um, history of medicine, but then this, you've been taking up loneliness. So give us a little bit about your story. How did you emerge into this world of studying medicine, the human body and history, and loneliness. How did that all begin? Wow. Um, well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to talk to you. Um, I first got interested in the history of medicine when I, I was working in social history. Uh, specifically, I was looking at domestic violence um, in the 17th century. And I was looking at all these court cases and thinking about how often people talked about emotion and the role that emotion played in negotiating relationships and how powerful the stories and the narratives that people have about their experiences are when it comes to contesting a case or to persuading somebody um, of your point of view. And so after that, that was my PhD at the University of York, and then I got funding from the Wellcome Trust to, to develop my work into the history of emotions and the body. Um, and that really made me look quite closely at the medical context, because a lot of the beliefs that we have about emotion or our minds or experiences are very much rooted in ideas that have come out from medical history as well as religion. And 
tracing that over time has been fascinating. And, and I specifically started thinking about loneliness after working for some time on different organs of the body, like the heart and the brain and the relationship between the two. And then I was intrigued by the ways in which um, loneliness was being talked about as both a, a pandemic and an emotional crisis, a mental health crisis, and all of the work that I'd done previously on thinking about emotions as physical and embodied experiences made me think, hang on, <laughs> we're focusing on minds here, which is historically we've separated off the mind and body in the 19th century, but what else is going on? Because clearly there's something that's very physical about these experiences. So as a result of that interest, I then started tracing the language of loneliness um, concluded that it really can be rooted in the development of capitalism um, and industrialization and urbanization, all of those processes in the 19th century that took place at the exact same time that the mind and the body were separated in medicine. And that just seemed fascinating to me. So since then, I've been working around the idea of of loneliness as a physical experience and something that's produced by society and not just um, an individual subjective thing. Whoa, are you speaking my language right now? <laughs> I mean, I feel the same way about mental illness, not just loneliness. Mm -hmm. I feel like mental illness is a societal problem that's also yeah. an uh, epidemic of modernity. Wow, really yes, cool. Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah. So how does it make, I mean, I'm curious how you feel then at how we're treating loneliness and or, I mean, in any of the ailments that we, that we are facing as a modern society, based on this research, has it started to give you pause about how we go about trying to treat these, these issues? Yeah, like you, I have, um, I believe that the way we need to look at um, mental health problem is very much as a physical and a social problem. Um, and what we do, we tend, in the West particularly, we tend to um, medicalize negative emotions in particular, don't we, like grief or fear or, um, or even anger, rather than thinking about the way they're produced in social context and what function they have in defining ourselves or in, in protecting our idea of ourselves and, and how kind of political emotions can be uh, for good or for ill. And I think that um, the work that I've done has really made me think about the medical approach to emotions. And, and I think in particular, the development of the loneliness pill, um, which is being developed at the moment. And the loneliness pill was celebrated as a, as, a, as a way of addressing this terrible epidemic. But of course, it simply targets um, the emotional impacts or experiences. And mostly those are the kind of depression and anxiety um, that's associated with loneliness. They don't deal with causes. And, and generally that reflects how we, how we function um, in the West in terms of medical treatments. We, we tend to ignore the causes. Um, it's a lot more work, I think, to imagine the causes because it requires us to look at structural change and social change. Um, whereas the medicalization model that's been very common since the 19th century, which is about separating the body off into different specialisms, it creates you know, a wealth of knowledge about the body, but it also separates us from our sense of self. And it separates the mind and the body in ways that make a lot of people feel disconnected from their bodies. Amazing. You know what you'll appreciate? I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard this quote from Lou Cozzolino where he turns Darwin's survival of the fittest upside down. He said, no, actually, we're not the survival of the fittest. We're the survival of the nurtured. And right, I, yeah, I love yeah, that quote. Yeah. yeah. And I that's what I hear you. That's what I hear you saying. In in essence, am I getting mm. that right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think really that sort of that Darwin idea has been so misused. Um, and it was misused because it, it developed at a time when it became really very much about separating off society, pursuing profit, letting go of traditional senses of community and value and belonging towards this intense individualism that we see, particularly in Western cultures um, and in the American and, and um and British context in particular, this idea of the individual and the individual, you know, having to define themselves against other people. But that idea is so, I mean, it wasn't really what Darwin intended and it's a very limited way of thinking about our social connectedness, our social relationships. And, and we are social beings, we evolve and develop in relation to other people. And I think that's right. It's the survival of the nurtured is exactly what it is. So then the question, so what I'm hearing you say is we've kind of got two choices. We can treat mm -hmm. symptoms mm -hmm. or we can treat the system, but treating the system yeah. is a longer haul. I think it's a longer haul and it also makes us really have to think about what is the individual and what is society and what's the relationship between the two. And for a very long time, um, you know, that the argument has been about this individualism and this pursuit of, of I suppose this pursuit of profit, and, and I don't mean that I think that capitalism is completely, you know, a terrible thing. I mean that it's, we have this position or this way of analysing uh, personal experiences being both, everybody is so responsible for their own health, for their own future, for their own destiny. There's no sense of kind of togetherness or collectivity. And where we have pockets of togetherness and collectivity, we see that people thrive. Um, we also see that people who feel connected to others in a range of ways, they have much better health outcomes, much better um, well-being and even much better prosperity. So I think that we really need to adapt as a society to think about what constitutes well-being. What does it mean to succeed? Um, because I think that some of the values that we have, they're simply not working. Yeah, I love that you're you're giving voice to so many things that mm -hmm. that I have suspected, but I'm I I just reach out to people that have researched some of this or thought deeply about this, like you. Mm -hmm. I realize uh, in our conversation we need to probably back up and talk about what loneliness is, and I imagine that you have a a pretty nice sort of working definition. How do you define loneliness? I tend to think of loneliness as a sense of emotional lack. Uh, between the relationships that we have and those that we want. So there is um, often a negative feeling accompanying that, but sometimes there are other complex emotions. So I don't think that emotion, I don't think that loneliness is a single emotional state. I think that it is a, an emotion cluster and it's made up of different emotions from grief to sadness to anger and resentment which is why it's often difficult to detect in others it doesn't have the same sort of characteristics of other so-called single emotions like rage um, or grief it's it's a very complex cluster and it changes it changes throughout our lives and it changes during the experience of loneliness and it also changes according to our position whether we're you know single whether we're living with others whether we're living in the city in the rural area our experiences our health so one of the challenges of how we talk about loneliness now is that we suggest it's just one thing that can be treated one way whereas it's such a complex emotion cluster that individualized responses really are the only way ahead i think that's really amazing and you're reminding as i was listening to you, this story popped up for me uh, I was sitting on the sidewalk and this really young man came by and he looked very 
put together. He had, mm-hmm. it was Friday, so he was done with his work day, but he was this young strapping fellow that you, that I guess on the outside, I imagined he didn't have a care in the world. He was attractive. He was good looking. He seemed affable, but all of our listeners were sitting there on the sidewalk and he just plopped down in my chair and then started crying, which I was completely floored about. Mm -hmm. And he didn't say anything for a really long time. And so I just sat holding his gaze in silence as he cried. And then he said, gosh, I'm 25 years old. I finished university two years ago, and I had no idea that work was going to be so lonely. I go into a cubicle yeah. every day, and I don't talk to a soul. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think, I know this is a big question, but I'm wondering how many people are carrying that load walking around that mm-hmm. we're not even registering because they're, they're either armored or we don't detect the outer signs of loneliness, because if they're not depressed and anxious, we don't know. Yeah, I think that's it. It's very difficult to read loneliness in other people. And I do think that a lot of people carry loneliness. And one of the challenges of loneliness as it's developed through history is it's been associated, particularly around the 1920s, with this um, a sense of social failing. So there's stigma and shame attached to loneliness in, in um well, really, I suppose in the last decade in particular, there's a sense that there's got to be something wrong with people if you're feeling lonely and, and, and unconnected. Where, whereas actually, of course, the truth is much more complex than that. And most people are lonely at some point in their lives. One of the things that I found particularly interesting about um, responses to loneliness during COVID-19 is that people are willing to speak about loneliness in a, in a really transformative way, I think. Um, And it reminds me of the fact that people who tend to suffer from social anxiety and crippling anxiety um, generally are saying to me, you know what, now that this pandemic is on and everybody feels anxious, I feel like they're carrying a bit of the load. So people are actually feeling more relaxed paradoxically. And I think it might be the same with loneliness where people who ordinarily would not say that they were lonely uh, are finding there's a kind of public discourse, there's a narrative that they can tap into and say, oh, well, actually, it's not that shameful to be to be feeling lonely either because I'm on my own or I'm feeling dissatisfied by my relationships. These are, it's not a shameful thing. It's something that we can talk about. Um, how it will change after, after the lockdowns, I'm not sure. But there's a, there's a definite cultural moment where things could change. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited by the potential, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's so hard to make big changes on a societal level, though, because yeah. there's, yes. there's a, you know, an entire economic system that doesn't necessarily support us simplifying our lives or reducing our work schedules or creating the rituals that would bring meaning back. And then, and then I'm also curious if you, if you had some thoughts about the role of how religion is not the centerpiece of so many more people's lives and the impact that that's had on loneliness too. What have you found in in some of your research or have you taken that up? Yeah, I think I think this is absolutely right about economic systems. But what's really interesting about the pandemic is that suddenly we find that we can work from home and we can facilitate work for people with disabilities and people with caring responsibilities. And so and so some of the barriers are um, they seem to be uh, psychological or ideological rather than literal. Um, And so that's interesting in thinking about how things might change. I think the religious question is a really interesting one because there's not been enough research into different faith groups and how religion can 
prevent people from feeling lonely. And I guess it works two ways, really, because religion can be divisive and exclusionary, or it can be inclusive and make people feel they belong. Historically, around about 1800, when you have purely scientific um, ideas about or stories about how the world works coming into being rather than the traditional uh, religious model, there's a there's a loss of meaning attached to that. I mean, how, for all its um, for all of its conventions and the the doubtless um, inequalities that existed in the past, there was a sense of meaning and connectedness to others. A sense that we were we were there um, by God, and it didn't make sense, but it but it had meaning. And I think that loss of meaning is really important. So where that exists. So where people feel connected to others, either spiritually or even in a secular sense through environmentalism or movements or networks that make people feel imaginatively connected to some world outside of their own. I think that's that provides a barrier um, against loneliness. There was this thread line then, even with injustice and inequalities mm -hmm. of a connection to God that gave us a connected, a shared sense of meaning that connected us yes. to one another. Is that what you're saying? I think that's exactly it. It's a shared sense of meaning of what is it all for? Can, so, you know, even if, if you have a belief in something and a belief in something that connects you to other people, then you can't actually be alone. And I think in the digital age where there's lots of different kinds of community or networks online, those are very different ways of belonging to something that is based on the kind of sensory connectedness of you to your home or to your, um, to your street or to where you belong. There's a, there's a kind of conditional um, nature of, of lots of different communities. So whereas it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to become lots of different people and inhabit lots of different communities, there's, there's nothing really that's um, enduring about it. Um, and I think also I'm sure that you know with your background and your experience is that this, these, these ideas about who we are and, and where we belong, I mean, they take they take form very early in our lives, don't they? And they and they are they carry us through our lives. So another thing that I think needs a lot more work is the ways in which being lonely as a child is linked to being lonely in old age. And we don't make those connections as much as we ought to, because it's about ways of you know negotiating social life, of feeling connected. And often it's the same tendency to feel lonely or feel isolated that we find playing out in much later life. Oh, interesting. So the link between whatever mm -hmm. patterning is happening and the way that you're perceiving yourself and yourself yeah. in the world tends to replay as you age. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense, though. I mean, yeah. you can think of all the attachment stuff that you're already playing out. Yeah, you know, right. you, you may not have, have studied this, but as a psychotherapist, the piece that continues to confound me is I like to challenge my own work. I'm not, I'm not precious about psychotherapy, and I find mm -hmm. it very strange sometimes, even though I have been recipient of therapy and gotten a lot out of mm -hmm. it, that we, we go to a room with one person mm -hmm. and talk about the most meaningful aspects of our lives with one person yeah. Yeah. and hide away what we're talking about oftentimes yeah. as if it's shameful and for me on the receiving end as a psychotherapist, having done this for so many years, I want to like scream from the rooftops, actually, you are so much more normal than you're aware. And yes. so many more people are bringing yeah. the very same injuries, confusions, sorrows, mm -hmm. 
And if we had the capacity to know that, maybe that would in, infuse you with a little more meaning, less loneliness, right? And I'm just curious if you had done any look at, I mean, psychotherapy is a kind mm -hmm. of medicalized profession, really, right? We're yes. trying to medicalize yes. the human soul. <laughs> yes. Do you know, yes, and, I, and that's really interesting, actually, because even the word psyche used to mean, you know, it's soul. Um, so there's this idea that it used to be our souls within us that was connected to God that determined our emotions. And now the brain has become a very secular organ. And so we're, we're still using the same terminology, but we're, we're looking actually at this, this concept of, of mind, which is, in, in, you know, located in the brain. Um, I think psychotherapy is fascinating because it's all about that intimate connection of feeling seen, of feeling understood. And as you say, that, um, that moment of feeling that you're not actually that strange, it's okay, you can talk about these darkest, darkest deepest secrets and, and you're connected to other people in ways that you, you don't know because there's so much social shame involved in being kind of open about how we're feeling. But the fascinating thing I think about psychotherapy is the ways in which the images and the stories and the, the archetypes that we might use in psychotherapy connect to um, that sort of collective consciousness and the collective unconsciousness. And so, you know, even in the way that we structure our deepest, darkest thoughts, um, they do connect to ways of thinking, to patterns of thinking um, that are much bigger than ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I think that psychotherapy is a really interesting way of thinking about this relationship between the individual and other people. Well, you're saying this, this beautiful thing, but more and more that version of psychotherapy is yeah. less and less insured, less and yes, less covered. Exactly. It's, yeah. you know, yeah. Jungian anal uh, um, yeah. analysts and uh, Freudian um, psychoanalysis and even psychodynamic therapy, which is mm. studying the dynamics between the therapist and the client are less in vogue. Yeah. And the forms of therapy that are in vogue. In fact, in the Silicon Valley, there are tech company sponsored insurance companies that provide free mm -hmm. mental health treatment, provided yeah. it's only symptom reduction focused therapy. Yeah. Not so we have, yeah, we have soul. the same thing. We have yep. the same thing in the UK. So the NHS, the National Health Service, tends to, it has a very bad track record of tending to mental health because of government cuts. And actually, what it really provides, and after a very long waiting list and all the rest of it, is it tends to provide cognitive behavioral therapy, which, as you know, is kind of short-term treatment to deal with symptoms. It does not deal with any underlying trauma. It can't deal with people who are much more complex psychologically. So I think you're right. It's, it's a kind of habit of quick fix, quick fix solutions, rather than you know, the complexities of human experience that deserve to be tended to. Yeah. When you think about all the research that you've done and I, I imagine there's just more and more that you're going to continue to do yeah. but I bet you have a daydream I bet you have a wish like if there were a wish for how we started shifting the way we tackle yeah. loneliness what would yeah. you what would you wish for well for me it's about putting the body back so um, for 2,000 years we had this idea about health mental and physical health has been connected so there was this holistic idea of the body um, and the mind and body weren't separated and I'm interested in the ways in which that can play out in a modern society so I'm not suggesting that we return to humoralism and this idea that we're all composed of four different humors but I, I am suggesting that we need a much more nuanced way of understanding our individual bodies as connected to the physical world around us to our senses um, when I read about um, 
medicalized approaches to loneliness, what concerns me is that it's almost as though we can target a specific place in somebody's brain where they're feeling lonely. But of course, that's not how it happens. And I, I gave a talk once and I asked people, you know, what does loneliness sound like? And you might have thought that they would say, oh, silence or the absence of noise. But actually, everybody has a sound of loneliness or a smell of loneliness. And in the case of, of hearing, it's connected to feeling um, excluded. So they can hear, people talk about being able to hear um, a hubbub of conversation that's going on in a, you know, behind a door that they're not allowed to enter. Or, or it's about hearing the activities of other people or even the street sounds when they feel very isolated. And I think in the same way, we can look at loneliness as being created and induced by our sensory experiences. Um, my own is... Um, the sound of Canadian geese. It's an almost pathological knee-jerk response I get when I hear Canadian geese calling because it takes me immediately back to a particular time in my early 20s when I was, was feeling lonely. And by contrast, um, when I was feeling lonely during this current lockdown and I was missing my very good friend who lives in California, I was able to smell perfume that she wears and I thought oh okay <laughs> so this reminds me I'm sensorially connected I remember my body is remembering that there is something beyond the sort of narrowness of my physical world right now and I think if we are able to tend to those sorts of physical sensory experiences we can address loneliness in ways that we're not at the moment and this connects to both this history of seeing emotions as mind and body connected but also it's looking at sociological and anthropological evidence that People talk about warmth and they talk about um, feeling comforted by the material world around them. Lonely people handle objects more. They become attached to certain objects. They want more hot baths, hot drinks, hot food. It's that we're craving this kind of warmth of companionship, which is being played out through, um, through objects and the world around us. And, and that's what I'd like to see finding its way into discussions of loneliness. Mm. Yeah, I just love this this link to the body for so many reasons. But just personally, a personal story, after having been in my own psychotherapy for a lot of years, I actually switched modalities and worked with a somatically oriented psychotherapist. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And what I share with clients, I integrate all of it now, the unconscious, mm. somatic, and the cognitive. Yeah. Um, I said, because I can't not do somatic therapy because it's the thing that created the most change for me. Yes. And I love that yeah. you're bringing up these cues. For me, yeah. smell, smell, yeah. I tend to smell something and I'll feel lonely, right? There'll be right. a particular right. yeah. smell yeah. that brings me there. Yeah. And then for me, the opposite of your geese, birds, <laughs> bird song, <laughs> makes yeah. me feel incredibly yeah. bonded, right? So it's it, yeah. it love that you're bringing all of these yeah. pieces, but we're living not in our bodies so often. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we don't. We live disconnected lives most of the time. And we don't, I mean, often we're just so busy that we don't think about what we're feeling or we have multiple kind of conflicted ideas about what we should be feeling. Um, and I think also, the project that I'm working on now is around facial difference and feeling lonely as a result of, of being different. Um, and I think often there are so many complex issues around what we're supposed to look like, what we should weigh, what we should eat, what we, that, that we're being disconnected from our bodies on a daily basis. And that's challenging if we're looking to kind of re, you know, regroup uh, a mental and physical approaches. 
And do you feel that somebody that feels different is feeling lonely because they're perceiving that they're being excluded? Or do you actually think that through social in-group and out-group dynamics that mm. they are actively being excluded? Do you have a, a sense of that? Yeah, I think it varies. I mean, certainly in terms of the groups that I'm working with that have facial difference, they feel excluded by others or they feel ostracized. And um, I think that that social dynamic is often really missing in discussions of loneliness because there is evidence that when people see somebody with disabilities or see somebody who looks physically different they do avoid them um, whether it's through awkwardness or um, you know a sense of discomfort or you know sometimes hostility or fear there's this there, there is an exclusion um, and I think once that becomes um, once somebody experiences something like that it becomes very difficult to to overcome it and we find this don't we with facial expressions so people who are very lonely and they're isolated from others they're not very good at reading facial expressions of others so sometimes they will see rejection where it might not be there so it's that complex kind of constant reworking of what it is to engage with other people um, yeah. yeah I love I love that you're bringing up both of those points one mm. that that our reaction to somebody that's different can yeah. actually generate hostility in us yeah. And mm -hmm. that further isolates a person that's feeling different. I, I've started to mm -hmm. have this experience after five years listening on sidewalks where mm -hmm. I have gotten to meet people so different than me. And I've met them so many times, whether it's a body size or shape yeah. Yeah. or a particular race um, mm -hmm. or a particular economic background, whether it's somebody that's been living with homelessness. Yeah. And my repeated exposure to them over and over and over again has changed my, you know, mm. internal bias. So I don't yeah. recoil any longer. Yes. I lean towards. Yes. But it's taken repeated uh, connection over yeah. time to make that change inside myself. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if there's, I know this is a hot topic in the United States right now, just because we have so much... Mm racial discrimination yeah. that's so yeah. embedded in our unconscious yeah um what you've learned if you've if this has been taken up in your research around how we learn our, our way out of these exclusionary practices yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean a lot of time it's fear of the unknown but it's also these sort of entrenched prejudices that come and a lot of it comes from the same period in history that I'm talking about the 19th century where you have these kind of scientific classifications and divisions and even even the idea of race doesn't really have any um, scientific grounding but we've internalized these ideas and we've created these kind of divisions between people that have well what we see at the moment these terrible atrocities um, being carried out in you know in the US and in the UK and, and all around the world on the, on the grounds of uh, of racial difference. Um, what I have noticed in looking at loneliness um, in history and as a, an experience that's different according to ethnicity and gender and class and age is just how, how often those sorts of exclusions go on on a sort of subconscious level, which I think is what you were talking about really, is that that sort of, there's an unconscious kind of bias in how people use even outdoor spaces like playgrounds um, so the, there were these experiments to kind of try to bring communities together by making playgrounds very more accessible. But actually all that happened was, was it tended to be some, somewhere that white people went and it wasn't somewhere that black people felt, um, felt included in. So I guess it's about if we want to overcome these kind of social 
you know, exclusions. It's about making sure that the conversations are open and that everybody is involved. Um, and I think also there has to be, particularly in relation to the kind of ideas about the body and about the mind and about emotions that come from science, is, is rigorously challenging all the time these kind of implicit assumptions um, that underpin racism. And I, I do see that very much, actually, of, of my work and my project, is talking about the ways that people feel entitled to talk about physical and emotional difference and the, the, the lies that those are based on. You make some bold statements, Dr. Boundalberti. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> I, I, I appreciate how you you just jump right in there. I know that we're coming to the near the yeah, end of our time I, here. I, no, go ahead, please. No, no, I was just going to say that one of the most important things for me about studying the history of medicine and the history of emotion is the ways in which some of the things that are entrenched in our society around racism, around sexism, around gender difference, they're rooted in what we think about the body, um, what we think about um, identity and what a person is capable of. And a lot of those ideas that were developed in the 19th century have not been sufficiently challenged and they're not, um, they're not thought about in the ways that they continue to play out in everyday life. So, you know, in the same way that my writing about loneliness tends to be quite political and it talks about structural differences and the ways in which people are lonely because they are denied um, equal opportunities. Um, I think that the same, the same issues for me exist around um, ethnicity, race, gender, and, and thinking about equality of opportunity, because it feels really important now that history has that kind of role. Yeah, I'm really glad that you, you, I, you've finished your thought, because that's, that's mm. really, really powerful. And so so important and daunting at the same time i can feel my yeah. own body kind of go oh i yeah. want that now yeah. i feel very yeah. impatient right yes. yes absolutely yeah and yet it's a long it's a long converse it's a long piece of work to change yeah. this um yeah. and where and we come seeing, from yeah and we are seeing change I and mean, we're seeing sort of academics do more and more research onto onto the effects of these inequalities and these scientific beliefs. And we're seeing more and more, you know, alternatives to viewing things this way. But I think that's exactly it. It just takes, these things take a long time. Um, and, and to so, sort of trickle down, if you like, into how people think on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. um, that takes a very long time. I just really appreciate the way that you're weaving the body and how our historical relationship to the body Mm. And the the differences in our body and the differences in the yeah. way our face looks or the differences of our skin color or the differences yeah. in our genitalia, you know, that that's a piece that we have to start yeah. really incorporating into this dialogue. And I, I yeah. really appreciate, you know, where my mind is going just listening to you. So it's, it's, it's really mm. exciting. We have a little bit of a tradition for how we sign off on our podcast, which is kind of fun, where I get, I get out of the way a little bit and I just invite you to speak directly to these folks that are part of Sidewalk Talk that listen on sidewalks. And you can either send them a wish or maybe a piece of advice or wisdom. So this is your moment to speak without answering my questions or being in dialogue with me, but to speak to those 8,000 folks now that sit on sidewalks around the world. What would you want to say to them? <laughs> Thank you very much. I think, well, what I would probably most like to say is that I know this is a really tough time for a lot of people um, for lots of different reasons. And in relation to loneliness, I think um, 
one of the most important things that we might get out of this current pandemic is, a, is not to be afraid of loneliness, but to really think about what it means to each of us individually at different points in our lives and in this physical moment, um, you know, the sensory experiences that we have in relation to loneliness, what it is that our bodies might need, what it is that we are lacking. And so that when lockdowns are lifted, um, we might be able to reframe uh, what, what we need from society, what needs to change in our lives to make us feel less lonely. And connected to that probably is, is the fact that loneliness is not always bad. Some people feel that it is a moment of change, um, as well as providing creativity. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really delighted to have been able to spend this time talking to you. Um, and I, in terms of a wish for the future, I wish for happiness <laughs> and I wish for some um I wish for the outcome um of this current crisis um, not just the pandemic but um the protests and the movements against racism and inequality to I wish for these outcomes to be good and I want us to look back at this moment of change um as heralding I really hope something much better beautiful we are all very appreciative to get to spend a few minutes with you, Dr. Baumdalberti, and I will be putting so much resource and links to some of um, Dr. Baumdalberti's books in the show notes. So for those of you that are listening, please head over to the website and make sure you, you check out some of her other work as well around the history of medicine and the human body and history and culture, which I also think is fascinating. And thank you again for being here with us. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. All right. Take good care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.